Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts in the New Testament and chapter number 3. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn in it in the back part to page 93, and you would be located right at Acts chapter 3. We're going to be continuing our study that we've entitled Seeds, subtitled The Acts of Jesus Through the Church. And we were, when we were promoting this and talking about moving into the study, we noted that there were two especially startling statements that Jesus made to his disciples. The first one is something we looked at two weeks ago, and that was this statement. When Jesus said to his disciples, it's to your advantage that I go away. You know, the Son of God is leaving, and it's to your advantage. The second startling statement was this. Jesus said to his disciples, he who believes in me The works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. Now, that was a startling statement for him to make. I mean, this was Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. This was Jesus who fed 5,000 men and their families with five small loaves of bread and two fish. What does that mean? He who believes in me, the works I do, he will do, and greater works than these will he do. Well, that really is the title of our message today. We've entitled the message in our seed series today, The Greater Works. And we're going to be unpacking a little bit of this idea of this startling statement that Jesus made. Now, we have an outline for today. It begins, first of all, with the event that occurs, and it's a spectacular healing event, And we're going to see that in verses 1 to 11 in Acts chapter 3. And then Peter is going to give an explanation of all that in verses 12 to 16. And then we're going to take a little sidebar for a few minutes because we need to talk about the issue of healing and miracles. And then after we've taken that sidebar, we're going to come back and look very quickly at Peter's invitation that occurs to those who are witnessing this miracle in verses 17 to 26. So that is where we are going this morning. And we want to begin by looking at the greater works, by looking at this event that pops up here in Acts chapter 3. And I think the best way to look at it, to orient ourselves, is for me to simply read the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you, if you have a Bible app on your phone or whatever, your iPad, Let's look at it. Let me read it and have you follow along in your Bible. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg alms of those who enter the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. 
But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, walk. And seizing him by the right hand, Peter raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. So let your eyes go back to chapter 3 and verse 1, and it mentions there that Peter and John were headed to the temple. Now, you will remember that Peter and John were buddies for most of their life, and they were spiritual buddies also. They were fishing partners when Jesus first found them. You remember that Peter and John were part of the inner three group of disciples, Not only that, but Jesus really, really um, relied on them and trusted them. And we learn from Luke chapter 22 and verse 8 that when Jesus wanted the Last Supper to be all set up as he had directed it to be done, he sent Peter and John to do that work. And you remember that when Jesus had been crucified and he had been buried and then he was resurrected from the dead, and remember a number of the disciples came to the, the tomb that morning, Sunday morning, and Guess who ended up running to the tomb? Peter and John together. They were buddies and spiritual buddies together. And here in verse 1 of chapter 3, we see them headed to the temple, and it says it was at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour would be 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And you may be thinking, now what's really going on here? Wasn't the church born In Acts chapter 2, and now we have a few days later, they're headed to the temple to go and pray. Well, they are Jews ethnically. They're, They're fulfilled Jews because they have believed in the Messiah. But they're still Jews. And so they are headed to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer, which was, by the way, one of two specially scheduled prayer times that the Jews would practice. Now, I just want to make a couple of observations here. You know, scheduled times of prayer are a very good thing. It's a good thing for us to schedule time for prayer. Why? Because if we don't schedule time for prayer, it can be easy to let our, our life and everything going on in it crowd prayer out of our life. And so they had scheduled times of prayer. Scheduled times of prayer are good. Uh, We practice some scheduled times of prayer uh, as an elder team and as a staff team. It's a good thing to have scheduled times of prayer. But also to note, though, that as the New Testament unfolds, uh, we, we see the picture that prayer in the life of a believer is to actually be a consistent practice. Nothing wrong with scheduling a time of that, but it should be a consistent practice. It should be, in essence, a running conversation that we have with God. When Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he said to them, I unceasingly make mention of you in my prayers. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, he gives an exhortation to the believers, which is an exhortation to us, that we pray without ceasing. 
It doesn't mean that we just have nonstop words coming out of our mouth. It means that prayer is this running conversation that we have. But they are coming for this scheduled time of prayer in verse 1. And there's this man, you'll notice in verse 2, who had been lame from his mother's womb. From the time he was born, he was lame. And and we learn from chapter 4 and verse 22 that this man was more than 40 years old. And he'd never walked, he'd never run. Now, see, it's important when you're studying a passage like this, get into the feel of what's going on. This man had never walked in his life. He had never stood up in his life. He had never run in his life. He had never jumped in his life at all. He couldn't move from place to place. And so he had people who would come every day and carry him and set him down at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, so that he could beg alms of people. Now, the beautiful gate was one of the main entrance points to the temple. Now, why do you think, I'm going to ask you to do a little thinking this morning, why do you think he wanted to be placed at one of the main entrance points to the temple? The answer would be, there was foot traffic there, right? He knew that people would be passing by him. You know, we have people in our culture who beg for money. They they take pieces of cardboard and write on them with magic markers, and they have certain appeals for money. Have you ever noticed any of those people standing there with their cardboard on some rural road somewhere? Anybody ever seen that? No, they're not there. They're at busy intersections. Why are they at busy intersections? Because there is a traffic flow of people that are there. And that's exactly what this beggar was doing, having people carry him where a number of people would be passing by. And by the way, there's nothing better than being right at one of the main entrances to the temple because it's really hard to be going to the temple and to feel spiritual as you are passing a lame beggar who is asking for money. And you know, without giving to him, you feel a little bit like, I'm not really being too spiritual with God here. So probably it brought more coinage than any other location he could have. But I also want you to realize that when we look at this lame man, in that culture of that day, being a lame person was totally catastrophic. There were no jobs for handicapped people. There were no wheelchairs that you could get into. There was no social safety net at all. In other words, he was doing the only thing that he really could do, find a place where there's a lot of people walking by and ask for alms or ask for money. Now, as I was studying through this, something came to my mind that I thought is an interesting thought. Do you know that Jesus often came into the temple through the beautiful gate himself? How long has this lame man been doing this? Multiple decades That means this same guy was at the same place when Jesus was walking past him to go into the temple. And you ask yourself the question, why did Jesus not heal him? And you know, isn't that the same kind of question we often ask when we're dealing with certain things in our life and certain desires we would like to see happen and we pray about it? 
We say, God, would you do that? And God doesn't act. Jesus never chose to heal this man. Why? Well, Jesus had a plan for him. And sometimes part of the plan of God for us is to utilize the concept of delay in our life. Where every time we ask, he doesn't act immediately, but he has a plan. Another interesting thought in all of this is that there was very likely multiple beggars who were here at the gate. It wasn't just one guy. But there's one guy that wanted to be healed, and God sovereignly chose to do that. Notice it says in verse 4 that Peter, along with John, fixed their gaze on him. Now, what is the norm when someone's begging for money and you're walking by them? What would the norm be? The norm would be to avoid eye contact, right? I mean, I don't want to look right at them or they're going to look back at me and they're going to expect something. So for most people who were entering into the temple, the norm would have been no eye contact and maybe at the most someone would have tossed a couple small coins his way. But that doesn't happen here. They fix their gaze on him, and they actually say, look at us. And what's going through the mind of, the, of, of this lame beggar? He's thinking, this is cool. They're looking right at me, and they want me to look at them. I'm going to get something out of this deal. And Peter says, surprising him, I do not possess silver and gold, verse 6, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, Walk. You know, he had that flash in his heart where he was expecting to get a gift, and he got a gift that was addressing a deeper need in his life than his financial need. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. You know, in in Scripture, a name is an expression of the essence of a person. In fact, later on when he begins to explain this, notice Peter in verse 16 He says to the crowd, on the basis of faith in Jesus' name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. The faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. In the name of Jesus the Nazarene, walk. Basically what he was saying is this, by the authority of Jesus, walk. And and we know that we've got a doctor really writing this account and giving it to us in verse 7 where Dr. Luke uh, says, it's very, very strong medical language here. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And those phrases, feet and ankles and ankle bones are unique terms in the New Testament, not used any place else. But Dr. Luke pulls them out of his medical bag and he uses them here and he says, that those things, his feet and his ankles were strengthened. They were made solid. Now, what are we learning from seeing this happen? That the power that Jesus displayed is now at work in his apostles. And there's a very important adverb in verse 7, and that is the word immediately immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. We see the same thing in Jesus' ministry of healing. Uh, There was one situation where there was a man with a withered hand, and Jesus told this man with his withered hand, 
stretch out your hand, and it says, as he did, immediately he was healed. Another time, uh, Jesus was talking to a leper. And you remember what leprosy would do to people, unchecked leprosy. I mean, if you had leprosy, what eventually would happen to you is, is literally your ears would fall off, your nose would fall off, and you would have open sores all, all over your body and particularly even all over your face. And Jesus comes upon this leper and he says, if you are willing, you can be made clean. And what would be the response of the leper? He says, I am willing. And it says that Jesus touched him. And in all three gospels that include this particular miracle, it says the same thing. Immediately, 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 his ears were back, his nose was back, and his open sores were gone. This happened immediately, totally immediately, the miracle occurred. And so that happens, and look at verses 8, 9, and 10. So with this leap, he stands up. He's never been standing before, and he begins to walk, and they're on their way into the temple. He goes, I'm going with you guys. He'd never been inside the temple before. And he was walking and he was leaping and he was praising God. And the people there saw him walking and praising God. And they were saying, this is the dude who was out there at the beautiful gate for decades, begging alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John. I mean, man, he's saying, dudes, come on. I'm, he's hugging them. Where are you going? That's where I'm going. We're going together. And all the people were running up to them. And all this happened at the so-called portico of Solomon. And they were full of amazement. Now, you might be wondering, what is the portico of Solomon? So I want you to see a picture. It's a picture of a model of the temple. And you'll notice that there are, this is not a real, you know, event. This is something somebody put together to show what it looked like in that day, Herod's temple. And you'll notice there are outer walls around the temple grounds. But then I want you to notice on the far wall, as you see there, uh, are some columns that are inside the wall. And above those columns is really, in essence, a, a porch, a walkway. That's really what a portico is. And, and so you see this all around the outer walls of the temple. You had these columns that were there with this little porch-like piece that was over the top of it. And the portico of Solomon was on the eastern wall of the temple. But as you're looking at a picture there, or any model that you might see uh, in a book, or a Bible dictionary, or Bible encyclopedia, or Bible atlas, or whatever it may be, it doesn't look very large. But I want you to be looking at those columns on that far wall and realize that those columns are 37 and a half feet tall. Uh, that is taller than a three-story building. And, and the whole portico along one of the walls, the eastern wall of the temple, was actually 225 yards long. You know, more than two football fields, a little less than an eighth of a mile. And so that's the area. You can see how thousands of people could gather around that particular area. And it was at the portico of Solomon that Jesus would often teach 
And it was a great place to instruct from because you had a little bit of shelter there. Uh, you had shelter from the elements when it was cold. Uh, you would have shade in the summer. And that's right where Peter and John go, right where Jesus had been to the portico of Solomon. So what's the explanation of this event? Well, Peter begins to unpack that in verses 12 to 16. Notice it says there in verse 12, but when Peter saw all this was happening, he replied back to the people, men of Israel. Now you say, well, he's talking to men. Where are the women? Well, it was three o'clock in the afternoon, and the women largely would have been with their families, likely preparing the evening meal. So at the 3 p.m. prayer time, there were largely men there. But you do notice he addresses them as men of Israel. He's talking to Jews here. And we've talked about this. The early part of the church was 100% Jewish. And he is addressing them. And he talks about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in verse 13. And in verse 25, he talks about them being sons of the prophets and sons of the covenant. He's addressing them as Jews, the people of Israel. And then he asks what seems to be a rather obvious question there. Look at verse 12. He says to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And you're thinking, you know, this is one of those Captain Obvious situations. Like, duh, why, why are they amazed? You know, I was reading this week about a truck driver who was driving his truck, and his truck was too tall to get under an overpass, but he tried to anyway, and he got his truck wedged in there. And eventually, a policeman showed up, and he walked up, another Captain Obvious thing, he walked up to him and said, oh, so you got your truck stuck, huh? And the driver looked at him and said, no, I was delivering the overpass and I ran out of gas. <laughs> I mean, you, you get the feeling that's the same kind of thing that's going on here. Why are you amazed at this? Well, duh. But the real issue is in the rest of verse 12. This is really what he was talking about. Why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at John and myself as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? You know, basically what their initial reaction was, okay, this incredible event happened, but it was these two silly Galilean fishermen that did this. How can that be? That's just amazing. The two Galilean guys could pull this off. Well, basically, he's saying to them, it wasn't us. And he goes on in verses 13, 14, and 15 and starts to talk to them. He, he talks about Jesus, and he uses a lot of messianic terms. He even, he even talks about Jesus, verse 15, being the prince of life. Uh, some translations uh, say the author of life. It's, it's the, the word for being the originator of something. And he's just walking him back through the history we saw in chapter 2. When, you know, how, how they had taken Jesus and had him arrested and had him tried and how they had taken him to the pagan Pilate and Pilate had been willing to release Jesus, but they said, no, no, we want Barabbas. We want the insurrectionist guy who had killed people but crucified Jesus. And he's reminding that, them of all of those events. He's reminding them, as someone has said, that they chose an eradicator of life 
over the originator of life, who is Jesus. And he says in verse 16, on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of this Jesus who you arranged to have killed, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him, Jesus, has given him, the beggar, this perfect health in the presence of you all. Translated, this happened by the power and authority of Jesus, the Nazarene. That's how he was healed. Now, let's, let's just jump into a sidebar for a few minutes on the subject matter of healing and miracles. And you say, well, why do we, why do we need a little sidebar on this subject matter? I, I think we need a sidebar because of some of what is being communicated and talked about in Christianity at large and in the church at large today. See, there are some people who run around and they would say this, we need to expect that people today would be mimicking the same exact kind of ministry that Peter and John have here. There are people today who say we should expect believers to be doing exactly these same kinds of things. Some of them would say, and the reason for that and the basis for that is that we, we haven't seen what Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 is really talking about. What they say is this. We don't understand the real meaning of Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5. It says there in those verses that surely our griefs he bore on the cross. And they say, don't you know that in the, word, in the Hebrew language, the word for griefs is the word for sicknesses? And then, then they say in Isaiah 53, it says that our sorrows he carried on the cross, and the word for sorrows is the Hebrew word for pains. And so our sicknesses and our pains he carried on the cross, and it says by his scourging we are healed, so we should expect that all sicknesses and pains be healed because Christ died for them on the cross. And so they would go on and they say things like this. Only a lack of faith keeps you from being healed of your sickness. They would say, everyone can be healed if you have the faith. And we have a lot of faith healers running around. We have them in our country, and when I go to Europe, they're over there. And these faith healers are saying, everybody can be healed. Come to my special meeting. I mean, it's not hey, I'm going to be working my way through the hospitals floor by floor. No, it's come to my special meeting, and then everyone can be healed. So that's part of the reason for this sidebar. Now, I want to say this about the use of an interpretation of the verses from Isaiah chapter 53. One thing to understand in Hebrew, Hebrew is a very picturesque language. And when he starts talking about surely our sicknesses he bore on the cross, it's important to understand the context of the verses. And when you look at the, the principle and the picture of sickness in Isaiah chapter 53, you will quickly find out that he is talking about spiritual sickness. Why did he bear our sicknesses on the cross? It goes on to explain what that means. He was pierced for what? Our transgressions, when I overstepped the law of God. He was crushed for our iniquities, my sin, my rebellion before God. He goes on to talk about how all of us have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. 
See, our problem is we are infected with this horrible spiritual sickness caused by our transgressions, our iniquity, and our sin, and our independence from God. That's why he bore our spiritual sicknesses on the cross. Now, we want to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of healing and miracles. And um, when you look at biblical history, you will find that there are miracles sprinkled at various times through Scripture. But the other thing you will note when you look at biblical history is that miracles were not a consistent, constant stream. In fact, when we look at miracles in biblical history, we see three things about them. Number one, they were limited in time. Number two, they were limited in scope. And number three, they were limited in purpose. So let's unpack each of those ideas. What do we mean by that? When we talk about being limited in time, while there's a miracle here and a miracle there, we see in biblical history that miracles fell into three concentrated eras of time. There was the era of Moses and Joshua. There was the era of Elijah and Elisha. And there was the era of Jesus and the apostles and their associates. But we see in biblical history that miracles were in those three concentrated areas. Not They were in other places too, but these three concentrated areas. And B.B. Warfield has observed that there is an inseparable connection, he says, between miracles and revelation. And he notes that miracles do not appear on the pages of Scripture indiscriminately, just here, there, and everywhere, but they belong to revelation periods when God was speaking through accredited messengers. And he goes on to say this, the early church, which is what we're looking at in the book of Acts, was rich in miracles because of its richness in revelation. So when we look at biblical history, we see that they were limited in time, three concentrated eras, but also they were limited in scope. What do I mean by that? Well, it means that not everyone performed these miracles, Not every believer running around had the ability to heal a lame man who'd been lame from birth. Not everyone had the ability to run around and raise people from the dead. Not everyone had these abilities. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about spiritual gifts, and one of the spiritual gifts was the gift of miracles. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 29, Paul says some very interesting things about spiritual gifts. He says there, all are not apostles, are they? And in Greek, you can structure a question in a way that you you can indicate the answer that you're expecting. He says regarding apostles, he says, all are not apostles, and the answer is no. He says, all are not prophets, and the answer expected is no. And then he says, and all are not workers of miracles, and the answer expected is no. Not everyone, not every believer had these abilities. They were limited in time. They were limited in scope. And thirdly, they were limited in purpose. This is very important to understand. Miracles in biblical history most prominently were designed to confirm a messenger and his message. They were designed in purpose to attest and verify someone as being a messenger from God and to verify the message that they were given. It's exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, which we've already studied, it says, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God the Father with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. There was a purpose behind it, and that was God was attesting to and verifying that Jesus was his messenger, and he was also verifying Jesus' message. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 3 to 5, something interesting happens. The, John the baptizer is actually in prison, and he's wondering about Jesus. Is he the Messiah? So he sends some of his guys to Jesus, and they ask Jesus the question, are you the coming one, the Messiah, or are we supposed to look for somebody else? And Jesus answers them and says to them, well, go and report back to John the things which you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. How do you know that I am the Messiah? Well, because of the miracles that are performed that are confirming and verifying that I am the messenger from God and also verifying my message. We see the exact thing happening with the apostles. We see it in Acts chapter 14 and verse 3, where it tells us that Paul and Barnabas were relying on the Lord, and it says regarding the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. It was, again, confirming the messenger and the message. We see it in more passages. I'll give you two more of them. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, talking about salvation, it was first spoken of through the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard the Lord, the disciples, the apostles, and God was also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles according to his own will. And then you have 2 Corinthians 12, 12, where Paul says, the signs of a true apostle, speaking of his own ministry, were performed among you with all perseverance. What were those signs? by signs and wonders and miracles. If healing and miracles were constant, if everyone did them, they would have no sign or verification value. Now, I have one more thing I want to touch on in our little sidebar here that relates to Christ and the apostles' healing that they did. Two things we we need to realize. When they healed, number one, it was immediate and complete. We see that in Acts chapter 3 right here. Boom. Secondly, when they healed, it was indisputable. No one ever doubted for one moment exactly what happened. There weren't varying opinions about what had happened. Look at chapter 4, flip to verse 16. Later on, when they have been arrested and the authorities are talking, and they were talking about this event of the lame man being healed, they say, what shall we do with these men? Chapter 4, verse 16. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. I mean, we know what happened. It was clear. It was indisputable. Now, I bring all of that up because so much of what is claimed to be healing today does not fit with that. It's not immediate and complete, and it's not indisputable. Just different than a lot of these faith healers claim today. By the way, just be honest with you, I really have no faith in faith healers at all. Now, you might be thinking this question, well, does God still heal today? Does, does God still do miracles today? Mary Bruce, what do you think about that? And my answer to that is yes on two levels. 
Number one, God can and does heal today, especially in answer to prayer. And number two, does God still heal today? Does God still do miracles today? The greater miracles happen every week and every day. What is the greater miracle? You know what the greater miracle is, is is the miracle of regeneration. That in a flash of an instant, boom, eternal destinies are altered. Someone who's on the way to destruction and perishing in the lake of fire suddenly has their eternal destiny completely altered. Lives being transformed in the moment of faith, completely changed on the inside. That is the greater miracle. That happens every week and every day. We're going to talk a little bit more about that as we close our study of the chapter. All all I want you to do is, please, don't go out of here saying, Bruce said God doesn't do miracles today, okay? Don't do that. I didn't say that. I said, yes, he still does miracles today. He still heals today. He can and does, especially in answer to prayer. And the greater miracles, they happen every day and every week. We're not going to take a lot of time to look at it, but in verses 17 to 26, he he really gives an invitation. Notice he says to them in verse 17, now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. He's really echoing the the words of Jesus from the cross. Remember what Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they, they do not know what they do. And the truth of the matter is that's true for most of us. I mean, we don't stand before God and say, I'm going to spit in your face, God. No, in truth, sinners, are we're just blind people. We're blundering idiots. But we're still sinners. And he says to them in verse 19, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and return. You need an about face in your life. You had taken Jesus, who was the Messiah, and you saw that he was crucified. You weren't thinking he was really the Messiah, but he is the Messiah, and his resurrection proves that. And so you need an about face. You need to repent and return. We saw this same basic command being given in Acts 2.38, but here baptism isn't being mentioned because it's not essential to the response. But he says, repent and return. Notice what he says. And he says, when you do that, he said, your sins can be wiped away. Really kind of a graphic picture here. It means your sins can be obliterated You know, in that day, they would write on parchment and they would write in in an ink that really wasn't permanent. You could rub on it once it was down and you could eventually rub it until it was removed and that's the picture of what happens with our sins that are just wiped away. Really what he was saying to them is you need to stop trusting in your own goodness and rather you need to be trusting in Christ's goodness on your behalf. Now, do you you know that there's a spiritual picture at work here in chapter 3? Because in chapter 3, we have a beggar who was born lame. And we're also born lame. We're born lame in our heart from our birth. We have a beggar who is poor, and we're also poor before God. We're spiritually bankrupt. We've got nothing to offer. He is outside the temple, which is the place of the presence of God. And when we don't know Christ, we're outside too. As it says in Ephesians 2.12, we are without hope and without God in the world. And what does he receive? He receives a gift of grace, the beggar does, and that's what also we can receive, a gift of grace, which is the gift of salvation, which is God's greatest gift. 
Now he goes on in these verses following verse 19 to talk about some national blessings that might come to the nation if they would repent also, not only individually having your sins obliterated, but he talks about times of refreshing in verse 19. He talks about the restoration of all things in verse 21. He's talking about the future earthly kingdom that could come to Israel. But I want you to notice verse 23. He says, every soul that does not heed that prophet, which is the prophet from God, which is ultimately Christ, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. This is really pointing out, just being very honest, the specter of judgment that every human being has to face apart from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, in John 3.18, Jesus said this. He's talking about the Son of God that was speaking of himself. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the unique Son of God. That was Peter's message to them ultimately. To avoid judgment, you have to believe. You have to repent. You have to change your mind about Christ. And by the way, there was a response. Well, but we're going to see it when we get to chapter 4. First couple of verses, they get arrested for this. But I also want you to notice verse 4 of chapter 4. But many of those who heard the message that day believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000 people who were changed from the inside out. Jesus said, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do, and greater works than these he will do. And the greater work, men and women, is the miracle of salvation. It's the miracle of transformed lives. It's the miracle of having destinies altered. And it starts out in the early church, 3,000 in Acts 2, 5,000 in Acts 3. And it's gone on and gone on and gone on as Jesus Christ has worked through the church to multiple millions of people have been transformed. Quite a passage of Scripture here. There's a lot there. But as you know, we like to talk about some life application that we can take from what we have been studying. And I'm going to suggest this morning two questions and a response that we can have. One thing to remember, we're always just one heartbeat away from eternity. And it's important that we get our relationship with Jesus Christ straight. Here's the first question. What sins does your list include you know, we have laid out for us in Acts 3 the, the sins ultimately of the men of Jerusalem for having Jesus arrested and tried and executed. But what sins does your list include? Maybe there are sins of coveting where you have really, really want something and you're willing to cross some lines to get it. Maybe it's, it's lust issues in your life. Maybe it's disobedience to parents or maybe disobedience to God. Maybe, maybe you lie. You lie some at work. You lie some to your family. Maybe your, your sin list is just a failure to acknowledge and honor God. You're basically telling God, I'm going to run my own life. What sins does your list include? And then secondly, more importantly, will you allow God to wipe away your sins? He's ready to do that. You know, in Colossians 2.14, is an interesting picture. It talks about how each one of us have this certificate of debt. And it says that certificate of debt consists of decrees against us that were hostile to us. And it says that God took that certificate of debt and he nailed it to the cross. 
But does that mean we automatically have forgiveness? No, we need to have a response to what Christ has done. That's why Jesus said in John 3, 18, he who believes in me is not judged. The certificate of debt is obliterated. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the unique Son of God. The gift of salvation is God's best gift. Have you received it? Will you receive it even today? And then the third life application is a response, and that is just to praise him. Many of us have received him, and we know him. We've received his forgiveness, and we need to just praise him. I mean, that's what this guy was doing. I mean, he was walking. He was leaping. He was praising God. That's what we want to do as we close today. So let's, let's um, stand, and, and we're gonna, I'm going to just lead us in prayer, and the worship team is going to come and lead us in a song of praise as we close. So, Father, we just thank you so much for what you've done for us through the person of Jesus Christ and, and the incredible gift of salvation, which is your best gift you have ever given, and it's available to us if we just will stop trusting our own goodness, which is ultimately bankrupt. It's going to get us nowhere with you. Lord, we need to trust in Jesus' goodness, his work on the cross. That's the miracle that will change our life. We thank you for those of us who've trusted in you. We have an opportunity now to sing praise to your name. We want to do that very thing right now to honor Jesus who died for us. And we pray these things in his name.